Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, okay, let me close this. Hi, everybody. I'm moving you guys here so I can look at you. Hi, everybody. So here we are. Part one of what will be two, for sure two, perhaps three parts to our series, which we are calling from the 49 levels of Tuma to the 50th level of Tahara. Okay. Now it's a little late. I'm sorry, everyone who's on the Zoom. It's um, Monday at about 10 to 12. Is We're going to do part one for about an hour. Amir Sashem tonight, 8 p.m. We're going to do part two. And we'll see about part three. So part one is just going to focus on the ideas that are swirling around this topic of the 49 levels of Tuma, how Hashem extricated us from us, how the Torah, the narrative of the, of the Torah describes Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and describes the communal life, the life of the collective nation as it is established at its earliest moments as a Kodesh Baruch Hu organizes our nation, our justice system, our hierarchy, the institutions of our nation, meaning the, the Mishkan, the temple, the institutions of power, who, you know, the, the institutions of the priesthood, how the entire early, early days of Am Yisrael are described in the Torah in terms of what we experienced, what we were taught, and how we're supposed to organize our life. And in order to understand that, we must understand it in context of the culture we came from. It is not by accident that a Kaddish Baruch Hu already predetermined and told Avraham hundreds of years before we ever went to Mitzrayim. Avraham lived after the pyramids were built. Okay, there were cultures already thriving all over the, the ancient Near East. And Avraham, Hashem said to Avraham, your descendants are going to go down into Gullis, and that's where we're going to form them into a nation. That's where their unique identity is going to be formed. And the interesting idea is that we form our identity as a protest, as a contrast against what was the prevailing norms. In other words, Kodesh Baruch Hu set it up that only through the darkness, through being in a culture that got it all wrong, being in a culture that distorted everything, being in the most powerful culture of the time that corrupted all the truths, only through that environment where we would be formed to stand against that. Yes, it is taking the R out of the Choshech. First, there needs to be Choshech. There was Choshech. Choshech was the default. Choshech meaning the confusion, the distortion, what we call Tumah. And we were extricated and the tahara, the purity replaced the tumah. Now, when we speak about tumah and tahara, we know we don't talk about ethical, moral sort of um, flaws. We're not talking about that we were, when we say we're on the 49th level of tumah, we don't mean that we were pedophiles and rapists and murderers, okay? Of course not. When we say the 49th level of tumah, we're talking about our concepts. Remember the word tumah comes from the word atum, Atum means blocked. Think about the fetus in the womb. We can't see the mother because there's a wall. If that wall is very thick and very dark, it's essentially blocking us. And then all we can really see, okay, is our own, our own reality. The reality of the world that we are in. We don't really see um, 
the, the world beyond us. We don't see the abstract, the metaphysical, the space where God is in. We just relate to the physical world around us. That's called Atum. So what we're going to see about the 49 levels of Tumah is that, yeah, there were really a huge amount. 49 is like a magical, mystical number, represents the essence of physicality, you know, seven physical world is seven, seven times seven is 49. It means the essence of immersion and physicality. And we're extricated from that. And all these physical, like a, a, like kind of like ideas that were framed in the physical become extricated from the physical and they get reframed correctly in the abstract, in the metaphysical, in the theoretical, in the, non, the non-material. That's the extraction from, of Tuma to, uh, to Tara, okay? Now, um, hold on one second. Did I? I record. I'm recording this, right? Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So now, um, so here we go. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at um, some of the key ideas. All right, that we must understand before we begin to juxtapose our Torah ideas with the Egyptian ideas. The first thing that is important to see is that the Torah itself, Hashem himself, and Amisho themselves sometimes refer to the experience of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, not as Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, but Aliyah Mi Mitzrayim. Not coming out of Egypt, but coming up higher, going up higher in Madriga from Egypt. When Hashem speaks to Moshe at the Sneh in Shemos 3.17, top of the notes here, by Yomer, Ale Eschemei Ani Mitzrayim. I'm going to elevate you spiritually from the poverty, the, in, the, the poverty of understanding, the persecution and the suffering that comes from a poverty of conceiving of life correctly. And I'm going to elevate you and rewire your mind so that what used to be what you could only, what you used to only be able to think about in physical terms, you will now begin to think about in abstract terms. And we know that when you get to Harsinai, this Anochi Hashem and Lo no images, no more physical, no more pictures of gods with bird, falcon gods, and lion gods, and cow gods, no more. It's got to be metaphysical, okay? No more images, no more pictures. So um, here, when you notice that what HaKadosh Baruch Hu was doing is he was changing, forcing us to grow up, to become more theoretical, more abstract, to understand that the powers governing the world are, are, are forces that drive us, that operate in our minds, our concept of ourselves in relationship to God, our desires, our values. These are forces that live in our mind and they're very powerful. And they're really what dictates the way we're gonna live our lives. And we're forced to abandon, to move beyond their comfort zone and get into a much more abstract way of thinking. And imagine you tell a child today to start learning quantum mechanics, physics, and calculus, very abstract. It's not so easy, all right? And here, notice in 17, here number two, A2, that when B'nai Yisrael face a challenge where they, a Baruch is forcing them to abandon their primitive tame impure understanding of you know that you know what constitutes 
um, being pr provided for, and it's all in their mind, God, you know, like physical people, kings, you know, physical people that they turn to to provide for them. And Hashem wants them to understand that it's God who they can't see who provides for them. So Kodesh Baruch Hu puts them into a challenge where there's no water and they have to turn to God. First, they turn to Moshe, like a physical person. Moshe says, what do you want from me? And then they're trained to learn to, 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 to turn to God. But look what the nation will say. They come to a place where there's no water, which Hashem sets us up on purpose. They turn to Moshe and they say to Moshe, why did you elevate us? Why did you take us to a position where you demand that our way of thinking has to be like, you know, transcend it has to transcend the way we think now and look at the Arachayim. The Arachayim says that Hashem created all these nisyonos for them to shift them so that they would start remembering and realizing that they have to turn to Hashem. Look at what's in bold. They did not consider their fate, that their fate was subject to God's personal providence. They just turned to Moshe. So Hashem put them in challenging situations to force them to understand that Hashem was watching them, was going to do miracles for them, was going to provide for them, and that they have to know there's a God they can't see, and their fate is in God's hands, and not Moshe's, okay? And look at the end of this story, when they say, why did you elevate us? And Hashem, and, and Shemo 7, 17 says um, that... Uh, this location where this event happened is called Masa Mariva because they wrestled, they, they challenged God. And what was the challenge? This was their big challenge. This was the Tumah. Hayesh Hashem Bekarbeinu Im Ayin. Is the non-physical, invisible God with us? It's very hard for them to conceive of that because it wasn't physical. And that's what the challenge was. And that's why all of these times in the Midbar, Kodesh Baruch was pushing them to points where they had no option but to realize that there was non-physical spiritual presence among them, guiding them, protecting them. And that was the biggest, hardest shift from Tuma to Tara, as you see by the ego. Okay. Number two here, um, look at B, uh, Truma, Parshas Truma. And we're going to see something from my grandfather, so creative, so insightful in Parshas Tetzava. But even regarding the Mishkan, okay, the, the Tzvah's Emes essentially says here that when they were in the Midbar and the Kaddish Baruch Hu commanded them to build the Mishkan and we're going to uh, understand the Mishkan in terms of Ramam's approach to the Mishkan also, he says essentially what they had to do is they had to take physical objects and devote them to God, all right? But in the process of devoting them to God, the language in the Torah is tell, Hashem said to Moshe, tell the Nishol, v'yikhu li truma, v'yikhu means take for yourself. Take for myself, take for yourself this mission of truma, which means to elevate, okay, laharim, to elevate. That when you give something to the Mishkan, you're really taking for yourself the concept that physical objects can be elevated and used for your relationship with Hashem. And that's very different from what they were familiar with, as we'll see in part two. They were familiar with physical objects given directly to priests for the benefit of the priest, for the benefit of the Pharaoh, tributes given to the leaders so that they would be happy and not punish them. And it was their, that their fate was in the hands of the priests and the Pharaohs, and they had to keep them happy by giving them gifts. And Hashem is saying, no, 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 no. There is some, there's my presence will be among you and you yourself will 
whatever you use in this world, you're gonna elevate it so that it becomes a, some way to connect to God, a demonstration of your direct connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Hashem's Hashgach, Hashem's providence upon you. So it's very, very different. It's again, a shift out of Tumah to Tara. Now the Jewish people, look at C. The Jewish people, and this is a famous idea that we, we know, we are called the racious, the beginning, right? The first Pasuk in the Torah is Bereshus, Rashi says, quoting from Yirmiyahu, Bishvil Yisrael Shenikra Rashis Tavaso, that the whole Torah was, was written, given to Amisrol for the sake of Amisrol, who are called the beginning, the first of the crops. Okay. Now we know that what that means is that Hashem seeded the world with the human race, but the first nation to be the first of the crops, meaning the first of the crops to mature, the first to ripen, the first people on earth to spiritually mature and become ripe, ready to be used for Ruchnius, ready to become the Orlagayim, ready like the actual mitzvah in Eretz Yisrael, though the first crops that ripen are dedicated to the Beis Amigdash, to God. So the first nation that ripens, becomes special to God, they become the Arlagayim to lead the rest of humanity to this spiritual maturity. And, and, uh, and the Pasuk Yirmiyahu says, the Jewish people are the first of the crop to ripen. Whoever consumes them will be guilty and evil will come upon them. You cannot tamper with Amishol. They're the only people, the first and original people to figure it out. And the way we started figuring it out is Avraham. Avraham, the way we, we've learned this idea before, that HaKadosh Baruch whose entire Bria is the self-expression of Hashem himself. And therefore, embedded in everything in the Bria, in all of nature, all the trees, all the animals, all the birds, all the fish, all of, all of mathematics and music and physics, embedded in the Bria is Hashem's self-expression. Meaning you could use the Bria to discover Hashem. And guess who did it? Avraham did it. And that's why it says in Barashas, Ela todos shamayim ba'aretz bahi bar'am. This is the story of the creation of the world, bahi bar'am, when they were created. And we know that Avraham's name, Avraham, is the same exact letters, meaning Avraham got it right. He figured out what this world's about, how to live in this world, how to be in sync with the spiritual infrastructure of the world. He figured it out, which means humanity can do it. Because the Kaddish Baruch Hu embedded everything we need to know in, in nature itself. Okay? And Amisol, the descendants of Avram, who follow motion to the Midbar, are committed to getting life right, to using the world as it's supposed to be used. And we become, this is what we have been given at Harsinai Hashem says, now you will all be, and this is a great contrast to the Egyptian culture, which we'll see in part two, you will all be goy kadosh umamlechet kohanim. You will all be, the entire nation will be priests. The entire nation will be elevated, not just the Pharaoh, not just a couple of elite people who get to have all the power, all the, all the wealth and everything. Everybody will be, and your mission will be to bring these ideas out. So what was going on in the rest of the world? How did these great truths that Avraham discovered, how did they get lost? Where were they? How did they get distorted? And there's even like a more mystical question. If everything and everybody is part of Hashem's self-expression, how do we not know it? 
if it's if as we learn that the neshama in us, the divine exhale in us, influences the way we think and our mindset, because we all exist within Hakadosh Baruch Hu's existence. And as we learn in Hilchos Yisodei Hatorah that Hashem knows us intimately and understands us because he knows himself. So if we're part of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, we must know certain, we must be basically aware of our divine aspect. Where did it go? And the answer is, it, it was there, but it was corrupted and distorted and manipulated for, so that people could take these ideas and use them for their own benefits, empower themselves, enrich themselves, and ultimately in a massive display of survival mode, um, set up some sort of justification for their domination of everybody else. So they knew about Neshama, and they knew about the afterlife, they knew about Selim they knew a lot of things, but they used it only to in, empower themselves, as we will see in part two. So here's a, an incredible idea from my grandfather that we have to dwell on for a moment because we're going to come back to it again and again in, um, in part two. In this week's Parsha, how perfect is that? Parsha's Tetzave, the big day kahuna are described. And among the big day kahuna is an aphod. An aphod is some sort of apron. And Rashi says, I don't quite know what it is, but it, uh, I, uh, it, it seems to me my, my conclusions from everything I know is it was some sort of, um, some sort of um, apron that was tied in the back over where you go to the bathroom, basically, okay? So it brings a Pasuk from Yeshayahu that the aphod was tied like that so that it was a simon, it was a mushal really, was what it did for us was a symbol that it was machaper, it atoned for the sin of Avodah Zarah, which is compared to waste, to excrement, okay, to tsoa. Then he brings a Pusuk, which we're gonna spend a minute on, from, he brings a, he brings a, a Megillah, 12b, the Gemara, and a Pusuk that the Gemara brings down, okay? And Megillah 25b says, Amar Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman says, Kol letzenusa asira, you're not allowed to mock, all mockery, and obscenity is forbidden. Except for mockery and obscenity regarding idol worship. Okay. So he brings a Pasuk from Yeshayahu. Kara Baal Kores Navo. Baal bows down, Navo stoops, meaning to go to the bathroom. Karasu Haru Yachtav Lo Yachlu Malait Masa. So it says, the prophet mocks them and says they are stooping and they're trying to go to the bathroom, but they can't release it. They're holding on to it. They can't escape their, you know, their 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 um what they're holding on to. They cannot ex deliver the burden. So they're like trying to go to the bathroom, but it doesn't come out. Okay, this is all right. So what does this mean? Okay. What does this mean? So my grandfather explains that uh, when we, when Akadosh Baruch Hu created the world, again, the entire physical world has within it elements of Hashem's own self-expression. All right? All of nature, 
And of course, the human being is the most concentrated, purest form of Hashem's self-expression and that we also have Bechira. And we also get to express ourselves on our own terms. And we also get to kind of like HaKadosh Baruch told Moshe, when you go to them and they say, well, what's the name of the God that's sending you Moshe? And Moshe says, Tashem, what should I say your name is? And Hashem says, Eka, Sher Eka, freedom. I will be what I will be. There's a certain element of freedom to express yourself, okay? And we all, as humans, only humans really have it. Malachim don't have it, right? There are forces of Hashem that are just forced to express Hashem's will. And there's animals don't have it. They live by instinct. We have it. So HaKadosh Baruch created a world where everything is an expression of God, all right? Now, when you look at birds, like the Egyptian, their gods were all animals, lions and cows and birds and frogs, as we will see, okay? So why did Akkadus Brocha create these, these the, the, the animals as he did? Well, everything is meant to teach us about Hashem. So for example, the bird has, a, there's a lot of symbolism in the bird to teach us about Akkadus Brocha's hovering above us, Hashem's presence upon us, because the image of Hashem carrying us on his wings. Hashem uses the image, kanfei nisharma. Hashem says by Harsinai, you've seen how I've brought you to me, al kanfei nisharma, the wings of eagles. HaKadosh Baruch Hu refers to himself as a bird hovering over us, as we'll see in part two, protecting us beneath his wings. We use the concept tachas kanfei hashchina, under the wings of the divine presence. So the muscle of a bird was a very important muscle to help us understand certain things. But we don't worship the bird. We extricate the nimshal from the muscle. We use the bird as a muscle. We understand its lesson. And then we forget about the birds. We just, birds are birds. And we just internalize the nimshal. So in other words, we, there is, it is important that Kodesh Baruch Hu delivers messages in packages that are physical spiritual messages and physical packages. Now let's look at the concept of waste. When you eat an apple, you have the taste, of course, but you, the main reason you eat that we're supposed to eat is because we have nutrients to get the nutrients. But you don't just take a vitamin. So what's the rest of the bulk of the apple? There's liquid nutrients, vitamins, minerals, all kinds of stuff. But there's something called roughage. The roughage is there to deliver the nutrients, to get the nutrients through your system. And then when all the nutrients have been absorbed, the roughage is excreted. It's just a delivery system. It's like the envelope. You take out the letter, you throw away the envelope. You take the muscle, you look at the muscle, you extract the nimshal, what it's supposed to teach you, you throw away the muscle, okay? You eat your food, you excrete the waste. What's a vodazara? A vodazara did not excrete the waste. They took the muscle, they took the physical symbol, and they worship the physical symbol. Literally, they worship the waste. They worship the envelope. They worship the muscle. They never extracted the nimshal properly, and it was all very physical. So when it comes to avodazara, we call we mock it and call it waste. They worship the waste. And my grandfather writes, what everyone else throws away, they elevate and turn it into gods. So they literally believe that the stars were the eyes of God. As we will see in part two, 
that the sun was literally the eye of God, Amun-Re, the eye of God, okay? They worship animals, literally, bowing down to the cows and frogs and all sorts of stuff and depicting them everywhere as literal gods, okay? So this is the concept of the waste, okay? Yes, in the chat I see here, they retained waste products are toxic to the body. Mind waste is toxic to proper dust, beautiful. And Baal Pa'ar was specifically a worship of human extraterrestrials. is correct? That a bizarre, a bizarre, which they, ex, ex, they, they excreted in front of whatever, they went to the bathroom in front of, okay. Now we have a couple of ideas that we've put together so far, all right? Number one, that Akash is taking us out of Mitzrayim, elevating us. And that means we have to elevate every concept that had become distorted, materialized, physicalized, essentially the waste product. And we had to go back and get the nutrients. We had to go back and get the nimshal. And we had to stop identifying with the muscle. And it was very hard. It didn't go so fast. It wasn't so easy. We were so wired to only think about the physical. We were, it was, we were young, as we know, a very infant nation in a immature humanity that couldn't think past the literal, the tangible. Look at little kids today. You can't explain to a five-year-old today some abstract concept. When you want to show that you're happy, you give a candy. Well, what if the child thought that that candy was your love and they, they put the candy under their pillow and they wouldn't eat it because if they eat the candy, you wouldn't love them anymore because the candy was your love. That's what we were dealing with. All right, now, the next thing that happens that we have to see <clears throat> is that when the Torah wants to teach us the right way of seeing things, the right way of understanding things, the Torah is going to use the terminology that the people were familiar with, and then it's gonna shift it, rework it, clean it up, and restore the tahara to it. Okay, so of course you're going to find um, language in the Torah that speaks what we call Dibra HaTorah Belashem B'nai Adam is going to speak in these mushals, despite the fact that the Egyptians distorted the mushal, the mushal is still a good mushal, a bird is still a good mushal, Hashem is still going to use the mushal of the bird, and that's okay, it doesn't mean that Hashem Shekhin is really a bird. Hashem is still going to use the muscle because we as people need to visualize certain things. And the fact that the Egyptians distorted and all the cultures distorted and literally worshiped birds and thought the bird was literally Shrina, okay, that is something again that we're going to work our way out of and disentangle ourselves from. But we shouldn't be shocked that the Torah does use physical language that people can therefore visualize things because these things are Mashalim, these are allegories. Okay, so you can look at E, one and two, all right, where the source in the Barachos 31b that the Torah speaks according to the way people spoke and the, and the language they used and, the, and also the images they used, okay? So look at Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, a human being, I'm in the second line, cannot speak of things above or below him without employing human terminology. Hence, scripture uses such terms as Hashem's mouth, Hashem's, you know, the mouth of the earth, sorry, the hand of the Jordan, these type of things. Yad, we're going to see Yad Chazaka, Zornitzu, we're going to see all sorts of things because, yeah, the Torah writes in Mishalim, as long as we know, Rambam's very strong on this, not to take it literally. 
Okay, now here comes a very, very huge idea that we must spend time on, it's F. Some people don't know what to do with this idea when they first learn it, very disturbing, throws off their whole conception of Judaism. It's, and there's a lot, a lot written about this and we're gonna to try to sort it out. Rambam is a rationalist, okay? Rambam tells us that in his approach, all right, is that the mitzvahs, even the mitzvahs applying to the Mishkan and Karbanos, okay? Especially being that if you read the Torah, just read the story of the Torah, you're gonna see that the, the natural story is telling you that the Jewish people came out of Egypt, Hashem is elevating them out of this whole distorted ideology, but they're not there yet. And they do an Egel, which is very Egyptian as we're gonna see in part two. And therefore they need to do a Mishkan to do a tikkun on the eagle to kind of like make sure that they have proper kedusha tahara ideas, you know, anchoring them and they don't get sidetracked again with these Egyptian ideas. And therefore there's a mishkan, it's a tikkun on the eagle. And then Raman's gonna say, therefore there's a lot of mitzvahs, a lot, even the karbanas are all because what Hashem was doing in his infinite kindness, being that Hashem doesn't, this is key, this is key, what I'm about to say now. Being that Akadosh Baruch Hu does not interfere with Bechira, being that the essence of our godliness is Bechira Chavshas, free choice. And Hashem never tampers with free choice, except in very rare cases like Paro. And I didn't include it in the notes, but go to Laws of Repentance of the Rambam, chapter five, to read all about it. Since Hashem never interferes with Bechira, because the godly part of us is that we choose our values, we choose our mindset, we choose the way we think, we choose and therefore we get rewarded and therefore we get credit and therefore we feel good about ourselves because we went past our limited understanding and we advanced our understanding and we gained knowledge and we did it. And Hashem does not come in and shift the way we think. So being that the Jewish people were, and humanity in general was young, and we had, Hashem had wanted us to evolve in this culture so that he could call upon the Jewish people to change the way they think and shift everything and introduce a whole new way of thinking to the world and change the world. So Kaddish Baruch Hu made us evolve in Egypt and then he took us out of Egypt and elevated us. But that elevation process took time and Hashem allowed us on our own to slowly shift our Tame mindset to a more and more Tahar mindset. And he didn't do it for us. So look at the Rambam. Rambam, you can read the whole thing. I highly suggest that after the class, take section F and read it very carefully. It's long, so I'm only going to focus on the parts that I bolded, okay? So basically, the, the Jews were acculturated to Egypt, and in Egypt, they had temples, and they had sacrifices, and all this stuff, okay? So look just above the blue for a little bit, okay, where it says, um, but the custom, which was in those days, general among all men, and the general mode of worship in which the Israelites were brought up consisted in sacrificing animals in those temples, which contained images, to bow down to those images and to burn incense before them. Religious and ascetic persons were in those days, the persons that were devoted to the service of the temples, which were erected to the stars, as has been explained to us. It was in accordance with the wisdom and plan of Hashem 
as displayed in the whole of creation, that he did not command us to give up and to discontinue all these manners of service for, for to obey such a commandment would have been contrary to the nature of man. We couldn't just shift everything. You can't go from five years old where you think the candy is your mother's love to 45 years old where you're, you're much more philosophical, psychological, you understand things. It doesn't just go like that. You child doesn't go from immature to mature in a, five, in a, in a minute, right? So he says it would have been impossible for us to shift the way we thought, right? Uh, it would be contrary to the nature of man who generally cleaved to that which he is used to. It would in those days have made this. Now, listen to what Ramam says. Hashem telling that generation, okay, that's it, which Hashem did, by the way, in the second of the Dibras. No more idols, no more images, right? That's forbidden. So everything was going to be channeled to a Baruch There'd be a Mishkan, there'd be sacrifices, but it would be cleaned up. But one thing that was taboo was pictures and images. But imagine Hashem would have said, okay, that's it. All 49 levels and 49 levels of Tuma, boom, I'm switching your mind and you're never going to think about this way again. I want you to give it all up, go straight into the abstract, conceptual, much more mystical type of thing, no more physical. So Ramam says, look what it would, it would, it would in those days have made the same impression as a prophet would make at present if he called us to the service of God and told us in his name, in Hashem's name, that from now on, we should not pray to him, not fast, not seek his help in time of trouble, that we should just serve him in thought and not be any action. Imagine a Navi came today and said, no more fasting, no more davening, nothing, okay? No more, no more seeking Hashem in times of trouble, no more saying to him, nothing, just meditate all day. We wouldn't be able to do it. We say, no, how can we not say Dilem, Davin, what? That's what Ramam says it would have been, okay? For this reason, God allowed these kinds of services to continue. He transferred to his service that which had formerly served as a worship of created beings and of things imaginary and unreal and commanded us to serve him in the same manner. So you can have a Mishkan, you could have the Kalim, you could have the, the, the Karbonus, but it's all going to be Re, it's going to be cleaned up, purified, and directed to God. So there's going to be a lot of elements that cannot continue, but there'll be some elements of it that yes, they continue. Okay. Now look, um, look at the last, the, what I bolded below that. By this divine plan, it was affected that the traces of idolatry were blotted out. Look, today we don't serve idols. It was blotted out, and the truly great principle of our faith, which is the existence and unity of God, which is a thought, a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing ourselves, this was firmly established. This result was thus obtained without deterring or confusing the minds of the people at the time by the abolition of the service to which they were accustomed and which alone was familiar to them. And I again, read the rest of it. So Rambam is saying that, um, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to give us the Bechira to shift on our own. And he gives an example, okay, that this is the same reason Hashem did not take the Jewish people, Derech Eretz Plishtim, that path where they would have to encounter the Egyptian garrisons and have to fight. And it was too much for them at the time, right? Hashem took them a different path because he didn't want them to be overwhelmed. That's the shot by the, by the, um, by the Egyptian army and the Egyptian garrisons that were stationed all the way to the east where they were going. So remember I was saying before that Hashem, that the Torah is Mikra, 
you're supposed to read the Torah. And then you just read the Torah, you see a story, you know, there were these slaves, they were acculturated, Hashem took them out. They weren't ready for a full shift. They did the eagle, so they got a mishkan, they got karbanas, like, it makes sense, this is the story, without getting complicated, all right? And, um, and then look at the bold, the following bold. It is contrary to man's nature that he should suddenly abandon all the different kinds of divine service and the different customs in which he has been brought up and which have been so general that they are considered as a matter, of course, they were like just so basic. It would be just as if a person trained to work as a slave with mortar and bricks or similar things should interrupt his work, clean his hands and one and at once fight with real giants. In other words, it was just too much. Now look what the Rambam says, look, keep going down. Rambam says, I know you're gonna ask me the question. Why did Hashem just come down and switch the way we think? This is not how Hashem works, all right? So look at the bold on page seven. What prevented him from giving us, spontaneously, as a part of our nature, the will to do that which he desires us to do? In other words, just change our mind that we'll wanna do everything right, forget about Egypt, just forget Egypt completely, total national amnesia, and just do, start doing everything without having to go through the whole process of extricating ourselves from the Egyptian culture and blah, blah, blah. So he says, why didn't Hashem just change our mind, made it part of our nature that we will do that which he desires us to do and to abandon the kind of virtue which he rejects? There's one general answer to these quotes of these three questions. Uh, there, he had posed, posed the questions above. Um, the nature of man is never changed by God by way of miracle. Hashem does not come down and change our Bechira. Go to the bottom, the blue. I do not say this because I believe that it is difficult for God to change the nature of every individual person. On the contrary, it is possible. And it is in his power, according to the principles taught in the scripture. But it has never been his will to do it. Hashem does not want to force us to think a certain way. We have the fear. It never will be Hashem's will. If it were part of his will to change at his desire, the nature of, every, of any person, the mission of prophets and the giving of the law of the Torah would have been altogether superfluous. So Rambam says, Hashem wants us to get there on our own. And if it takes time and we have to get weaned off our misconceptions, it's okay, as long as we get there. So when we look around at our friends today and our people today and our kids today and our culture today, people are very steeped in mistaken ideas, it's true. You know, today it's not so much that everything's so physical, it's everything's so abstract. We have, we have a metaverse. We have everything is so non-physical and people get caught in that and they forget their basic telemilikim also, basic mitzvahs of ben adam l'chaveiro, you know, because everything's so abstract, everything's so theoretical. You could technically live in the metaverse and never interact with real people. So the point is that a Baruch Hu never changes, manipulates our bachiri, gives us the opportunity to shift step by step to, and get to where we're supposed to go. Okay, does it make sense, people? The next idea before we get to, to part two is um, also a very important idea that, that comes into this. Um, one of the most fundamental ideas, the idea of uh, the Torah, how you view the Torah, okay? the Torah itself. And we already said that the Torah number one is Mikra. You're supposed to read it. My grandfather used to say, you know, we get, sometimes we get so caught up with every, you know, with the, with the, with the details. In other words, you, instead of just reading the Torah as a story and getting the basic gist of it, we stop every Pasuk, do 10 Mephorshim. He said, it's like you're on a cruise to Alaska, but you're not looking at the scenery. You're stopping every five feet and doing a chemical analysis of the water. You know, you're missing the big picture. So my grandfather says that um, 
you have to read the Torah. And if you read the Torah, you get a basic story. You know what that story is? Not very complicated. Amir Tashem, that's going to be our curriculum. That's the four modules that we're working on. Number one, what is a human being? Selmakim, Neshama, connected to God, Shechina, Puravu, you know, express God in the world. Simple, that's, that's the first story. Second story, Eitzadas, you know, there's a danger. Watch out for the pitfalls. Because you're Tzalmulakim, because you have the power to express yourself, you might misuse it. You might look around the world, come to the first most dominant conclusion, which is, oh my gosh, we're vulnerable. Well, there's so many powers around us. We could die, we could be poor, we could be weak, like no, we get terrified. And then you start misusing your Tzalmulakim and it all becomes a power struggle and you wanna express yourself you want to control everything. You want to, you want to, you want to overpower death and vulnerability, and you're going to just get totally caught up in what we call survival mode. Be careful. That's it. It's a das. Don't do that. Don't be so subject. Don't misinterpret the world. And then if you do, you get the kind and Hevel. You get to Noah. The whole thing doesn't work. Then, what does the Torah continue? But there's a way to get it right. Introducing the Avos, the Mahos, Am Yisrael, Yishmol and Yitzchak, Yaakov and Esau. There's a way to get it right. There are true ideas that can guide you. There's a true lifestyle that you can adopt and you'll get it right and you'll use the word world correctly. And then comes the story of the children of the Avos and the Mahos who commit to doing it right. And then you get the story of Egypt. I'm going to put you in the culture, Hashem says, that got it all wrong. And you're going to be a juxtaposition. Yes, you're going to appreciate the R. In contrast to the Choshech, that's correct. You need to see the R in contrast to the Choshech. You need to see the alternatives, all right? And that's going to be the, 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 the kind of like the, the um, setting for the development of Amishol. I'm going to take you out of it. And then I'm going to give you the Torah. And it's, you're going to have the way to get it right. And then you're going to accept the Torah. And then you know what's going to happen next? I'm going to give you a way to a national guidelines for a national lifestyle, justice system, you know, judicial system, executive system, the regular and set up your society and teach you how to set up your society. And till you get it right, you're going to make some mistakes and that's okay. You're going to make these mistakes because it takes a while. So I'm going to give you those strategies to get it right, to kind of like rule in, to rein in the, the errant, you know, the strands that might go in the wrong directions because you're not there yet and will rein it in. You get a Mishkan, you get Karbanis, you do it all right. You'll get things in line with what they should be. And eventually you'll set up a whole nation. You'll learn how to set up your lifestyle, your national lifestyle correctly, in sync with God. So Hashem will be among you permanently and you'll be an Arlagayim. And then you'll go into Eretz Yisrael and you'll do it. And if you don't, it'll take time. It'll take a uh, a long journey through history because your goal is not just to do it for yourself. Your goal is ultimately to set an example for everybody. And that's actually going to require that you're going to have to spread out through the world. So uh, you just read the Torah and that's the story. Now we also today, so, so I'm going to end with this idea and then we're going to pick up tonight with all the pictures and examples. When the Jewish people agreed to be Ora Lagayim, a light to the nations, when we agreed to be, which that's, that's a phrase from Yumiyahu, but in the Torah in Shemos, we, right before Harsinia, we actually agreed to be Gai Kadosh Umam Lechet Kohanim, a nation that is separated, unique, plays a very special role, and an entire kingdom, an entire nation of priests. 
first of all, huge juxtaposition to the priesthood in Egypt, which again was just elite where they hoarded all the power and the money and everything. We'll get to that tonight. But Amisrol agreed to this role. And when they agreed to this role, the actual story in the Torah is Hashem said to Moshe, okay, they agreed. Now I'm going to give them the Sarasadibus. But before I do, you need to write Sefer Habris and read it to them. Okay, this is in Mishpatim, Parak Haftali, chapter 24 in Shemos. So Moshe writes the Sefer Habris, the book of the covenant. A covenant means an agreement between two people to a deal. It's a deal between two parties, Hashem and Amisol, for a purpose. And the purpose is going to be our Lagoy. It's a covenant. It's an arrangement, arrangement we made together. Now, Rashi says, what was in the Sefer Habris? And the answer is, Moshe wrote, Alpi Hashem, dictated by Hashem, the entire story, starting with Boratius Baral Kim, till that moment, till, they, till Har Sinai. What that means is that Moshe wrote the Torah approximately 1400 BCE. That's when Moshe wrote the Torah. And it was dictated by Hashem and it went all the way back and it was the whole story. Now, the way Hashem dictated the Torah, the language Hashem used, the words Hashem used were chosen by God to essentially tell a story. Tell a story and the message of the story is how it all unfolded. How I created the world, how everybody was at Selma Kim, how, how I made it very clear what the dangers are of this Selma Kim. You could think you're God, and then with your fear of death, you could totally corrupt everything and, and enter into survival with this. And I told the story of what that looks like with Cain and Hevel and Noah. And then I told the story about Abraham and Sarah and the you know, obviously Mahos and the whole thing. Then I explained how Amisrol evolved. I explained that I put you into Egypt and what Egypt was all about and how I took you out of Egypt. And now I, and in the Torah that Hashem wrote, he uses language that that generation that Moshe was reading the Torah to understood because he's talking to that generation. Obviously, we are not saying that he was only talking to that generation. Since Hashem wrote the Torah, Hashem can embed in every word of the Torah many, 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 many meanings. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When Hashem wanted to tell us the story, of the confrontation between Egyptian ideology, Pharaoh and his dreams of the cows, the fat cows and the skinny cows, and how in Pharaoh's ideology, there were good gods and bad gods, gods of destruction and gods of, gods of life. And what if the God that we always associated with, with life, which was Hathor, the cow, the bearer of life, what if she became angry? What if she suddenly became a destroyer of life? What would we do? We're all doomed. We're all going to die. How do we control the gods? Right? We're all like these helpless victims. This is Paro's ideology. And here comes Yosef and he says, there are no gods. It's Hashem. And he's telling you that you, you have an opportunity to get rich. It's like so different. It's so radically different. Now, I don't know the Egyptian words that Pharaoh used when he described his dreams to Moshe. We don't know the Egyptian words he used. But when Hashem told the story, Hashem used words that we now can learn from. And because Hashem chose the words, 
There's many, 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 many layers of meanings in those words. But they're not Paro's exact words. They're Hashem's telling us the importance of the whole confrontation and how many ideas are deeply embedded in the narrative because Hashem wrote the narrative and that's why we mine the Torah for many, many, many layers of meaning because it's God's words. So when we see that a Kaddish Baruch on the one hand is telling Moshe to write the story in the language that those people knew, but since Hashem is choosing the language and the story and how the story is built, we can also go much, much, much deeper in the story. It's not limited to simply the language of the day and a simple story that a human being wrote and that's it. You understand? I hope that's clear. So we get, we're not shocked when we see language that's very familiar to that generation came out of Egypt because it super corresponds tremendously with how the Egyptians spoke and what their ideology was. But at the same time, of course, it's Hashem's Torah and there's an endless, endless reservoir of ideas embedded in it. Okay, I hope that makes sense. I just want to end with this idea. I want to tell you about my trip to Egypt before we go into everything we're going to learn tonight. We went to Egypt with a professor named Professor Joshua Berman, okay? This man, very important person. I think it seems to me that his work is absolutely vital and he's extremely well-known and very, very famous. Now what Joshua Berman does, his Avodas HaKodesh, okay? Is he is spending his life deconstructing the Bible critics, all right? You know, we learn Torah of Moshe Shapiro. We're mining the Torah for very deep ideas about ourself, our psyche, our self-concept, spiritual ideas, mystical ideas. But it's very important to understand that the modern scholarship coming out of Eretz Yisrael today, it's very, very different, very different emphasis. You see, our claim to the land is from the Torah. Hashem says, So there is a tremendous emphasis by Bible critics starting already hundred more than a hundred years ago to delegitimize the Torah. Because if the Torah is not written by God and it's not the document we claim it is, it's just a book written by a bunch of authors a thousand years after, a thousand years ago or whatever, okay? A bunch of legends put together, disorganized, contradicting each other then you know what, then the Torah has no credibility and nothing it says has credibility and it's not true. And therefore all the promises in the Torah that, that Eretz Yisrael is ours are not true. So there is an emphasis today to establish the veracity of the Torah. Now, Professor Joshua Berman works in Bar Ilan in the Bible studies program. I remember a couple of years ago where a girl in the shir, a woman in our shir came to me with a book called How to Read the Bible from James Kugel. James Kugel is so-called orthodox. He wrote a book that is a thousand percent kfira, heresy, apicarsis, destructive, horrible Bible criticism. He was so smart, James Kugel. He, with his academic strategies, realized that you know, chapter one and chapter two in Boratius are two different versions of the creation story and two different names of God. It must be two different authors. You know, like it's, first of all, the arrogance and the stupidity is contemptible because Amaforshim for thousands of years have already been explaining exactly what's happening here, why Hashem writes it this way. 
But in any case, James Google writes this biblical criticism book. He was also in Barilla. This man, Jonathan Berman, I mean, Yeshua Berman, his life's work is to deconstruct these arguments, to show the flimsiness and the stupidity of these arguments. And you know how he does it? He says, the reason you don't understand the way the Torah is written and say, oh, this phraseology, you know, doesn't, is not uh, consistent with how things were back in Egypt. And uh, one of the big um, examples, for, which we're not going to get into right now, was the Torah says there were camels, but our archaeology has found there were no camels in Israel at that time, you know, this type of stuff. Okay. So what Rabbi Berman says is, you know, and he attributes it to tremendous hashgacha says in, in, in the late 1800s, all these Egyptian tombs and all these palaces and all these temples began to be excavated. And suddenly we saw splattered on all the walls of everything all over Egypt, scenes engraved and painted that are still crystal clear today of their life. And suddenly it became super obvious that language in the Torah was literally specific it had specific correspondence to Egyptian more norms of that exact generation. <laughs> Things that you find identified with the kings, Ramses and Menetep, Herchaput, whatever, that were exactly within that 100 years of the Exodus. And the images they portray are precisely the language that the Torah is using to contrast and to talk about things. How could these so-called biblical composers that lived a thousand years later, all right, that put the Torah together from various legends, they didn't know this stuff because this stuff was just, this archeology span is only the last 150 years. So they didn't understand the Torah. Now that you see literally the Egyptian culture, you understand the shot of the Torah. The shot of the Torah begins to jump out at you and you can only see the correspondence once you have the archaeology. So he says, now that you see this, it is in, it's, 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 it's given that the Torah was actually written in that generation because how would anyone have known these Egyptian, you know, all these various little Egyptian, you know, like little, um, all these Egyptian cultural things. How could you have known? We don't, we didn't know. So that's his avoda. His avoda is to show that the language in the Torah directly corresponds to the culture of that time, all right? He doesn't go into what we just did and what we wanted, which is the idea that the Kaddish Baruch created the world and there were certain truths in the world, certain spiritual ideas. And also, as we talked about Migdal Bavel, certain words. And they were there and people knew about the soul and the afterlife. They knew about worship and they knew about Shechina and they knew about these things, but it was all distorted. They even had some root words. So when you see that a Kaddish Baruch Hu takes us out of Egypt and cleans up all this distortions and restores it to Tara, you're seeing that yes, Hashem is using the language, but here's the difference. I don't wanna say, there's no reason that I need to say no, no scholarly reason that I need to say that each, the Egyptians invented certain concepts and then Hashem wrote the Torah in language that corresponded to those concepts. There's no reason to say that. We have enough evidence from the Torah itself that these concepts were not invented by the Egyptians. They were distorted by the Egyptians. These concepts existed. 
Yes, so we can still say that even though as we see tonight, we're gonna to see the Egyptians had a distorted concept of life being bestowed through the nose and they refer to it as the anch and the key of life. And then Hashem says, I, I blew the neshama in the nose. He wasn't just copying the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a true concept that was distorted and Hashem was cleaning it up, okay? So that's, the, that's just the nuanced difference, all right? We are, um, but that's not his agenda. His agenda is to show the language correspondence to establish that the Torah was written exactly when we say it's written as a single document, not put together by multiple people. That's it, by Hashem, and that's it. That's his goal. Um, and kolakavo to him. Again, as we said, our goal is to even zoom it out a little bit more and show how the core MS got distorted and then got restored to its proper um, orientation. Okay, so that's the introduction to what Emir Hashem we're gonna do, do tonight, which starts on page eight and goes for like 40 pages of pictures. And Emir Hashem will be fascinating. I'll see you at eight o'clock. Let me just quickly go through the chat here and um, see if there's any questions. Okay. Um, Amalek had to look up for victory during the war, right? Uh, did Sarah figure it out on her own or was she taught by Avraham? That's a very good question. Um, that is a good question. I think by Terach already, if you, if you go back, Terach already had abandoned the idols. Terach had already, with Avraham, fulfilled the mitzvah of Lech Lecha. He had left or him with Avraham. And, um, and so he had already abandoned it. And of course, Sarai was from that family. So she was probably on her way there. Yeah, I don't know enough, but I'm sure, um, you know, already going in that direction. In order for free will to be free, opposing forces had to be extremely powerful and enticing, correct. Um, Balpur was a worship of the extracore system. Yes, beautiful. And then Moshe, very good idea. Uh, Bobby Sandy, creation of man has the idea of us. Let us make man. That is establishment of Bechira as an option for man before his own creation. Beautiful. Be beautiful. We have Bechira to create ourselves. Rabbi Sachs posts that Mamlechus Konim means that all the nation will be literate, not just a certain class. Yes, we're going to see that. Okay. That's right. That's why they did all the hieroglyphics so nobody could read and nobody could know anything. Sigalit, we'll see you later. Bobby Sandy, Yosef's Egyptian name is recorded to show us that Paro called him that name and not Yosef. So the brothers shouldn't realize who he was. That's right, interesting. Safnat Paneach. Um, tonight's share will be on Torah. Anytime or should I go get up at 3 a.m.? <laughs> it will all be posted. I don't know, guys, if this is going to end up on Torah anytime because they don't like Zoom. And I couldn't set up the, the camera. If it is not on Torah anytime, okay, I'm going to post this Zoom and tonight's Zoom with all the pictures and the screen share. Okay, if it doesn't end up on Torah anytime, I will post on all the chats where it will be fully posted, the whole Zoom with all the pictures and everything, okay? I hope to anytime we'll put it up. They won't be happy because they don't love the quality of it. But if they don't put it up, I'll let you know where it will be posted. It'll probably be um, OU, the OU Torah website, the all Parsha website where I post my Parsha share, okay? Um, all right, everybody. All right. I can't post the video on the chat. That's the problem. I can only post the audio on the chat. That is the problem. I could send you a link, a Zoom link, which expires after a while, to the video. That I could put on the chats too. Okay, but Amir Tashem, this will be up until any time, I hope. All right, everybody. I will um, see you all tonight, Amir Hashem at 8 p.m. See you later.
Take care, guys.